It might take you out of your comfort zone at first, but river guide Heffy Aronson knows just how a whitewater river rafting trip can change your life. Here are people from all different walks of life, all over the world, who might on the street just pass each other by, and within a few days, they're best friends. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, you can find adventure on the Colorado River, or, like book lover Nancy Pearl, explore the world from a comfy sofa through great travel literature. It was those librarians who really were my first travel guides who opened up the world for me. And a pair of guides from Madrid help us to enjoy the local fare in Spain's tapas bars. It can be intimidating. Do you go to the bar, do you order? Do you wait for them to come to you? Do you pay before, do you pay after? Surtido is actually the best choice. It's mm-hmm. just a big, big dish. Outdoors, inside, or overseas, travel adventures coming your way in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steve. There's real variety on your plate today on Travel with Rick Steves. A pair of guides from Madrid help us navigate the customs of Spain's tapas bars coming up in just a bit. And librarian Nancy Pearl recommends some of her favorite literary escapes for seeing the world. Perfect if you'd like to take the grand tour from the comfort of your easy chair. Let's start on one of the wild scenic rivers of the western USA. There's so many ways to experience and appreciate the great outdoors in the United States, and one of the best must be immersed in nature, almost literally immersed in nature, when you're rafting or paddling or canoeing or kayaking down a great river. I'm joined by Hefe Aronson, who's a river raft guide, works for a company called Oars, O-A-R-S. Hefe, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Hefe, when you're thinking of the great rivers of the great west of the United States and Canada, what four or five rivers come to mind? I would say some of the top ones would be the Middle Fork of the Salmon River in Idaho, mm-hmm. uh, the Rogue River in Oregon, of course. Uh, for the adrenaline junkies, the Tuolumne River, the T in uh, California near Yosemite, and of course the grandmother and granddaddy of them all, Grand Canyon, Colorado River. Okay, now when you say for the adrenaline junkies, the Tuolumne in California, why is that so exciting compared to the others? Is it just more white water? There's a a grading scale of one to six, one being kind of like the Mississippi and six being you're crazy, don't do that, you're going to die. And typically class three is what we're looking at for family trips, you know, fun, challenging, but not over the top, sort of like what you would find on the Rogue River or the Middle Fork of the Salmon or parts of the Grand Canyon. The Tuolumne is class four. That's getting right up there. And uh, it's pretty consistent and it's challenging and you're paddling your own boat and as the river dances by and has all those other qualities that we love about rivers and there's beautiful mountains and forests and waterfalls, when you're on the water, it's full on. You're definitely getting soaked all the time and you're listening to screamed commands and it's it's great. Now, it is adrenaline. I took a, a level three river in the middle fork of the Salmon River and it was it was actually scary and exhilarating and a great feeling of accomplishment and it felt dangerous. Now, I know that just from my experience, a lot of times things feel more dangerous than they are, and it's part of the thrill and everything. But, I mean, there is a risk when you get out there. Uh, How dangerous is it? Are there any statistics? How many people river raft and, and how many people die? I think I read somewhere recently where somebody compared the statistics of river rafting deaths, uh, compare something like golfing. (laughs) <laughs> oh, come on. commercial river trips. Is that right? No, seriously. I, I had to laugh when I saw it. But So you're saying uh, that you, the, the, the rapids can look dangerous, but really it's a freaky thing if anybody ever dies on the river. Well, you know, we're all trained in first aid and stuff, but we also have to have what Barry Lopez calls the native eye. We, we kind of have eyes in the back of our heads, and we're always watching and keeping things under control and performing triage. And, you know, it's just like... Uh, the Terminator, that you know, the thing that happens behind his eyeballs in the first one, where he's just <laughs> and you don't see that. That's sort of behind the scenes, and that's kind of how we like to keep it. And if we see something coming up that might be dangerous, we're dialing it out pretty good, and nobody has to know about it. Now in Switzerland, they had a whole raft of uh, maybe that's a poor choice of words, a whole a bunch of a uh, strange coincidence of a lot of people dying in terrible Mm -hmm. adventure sports uh, accidents, canyoning and jumping and all sorts of stuff. They all got really serious about safety, and now these adrenaline sports companies are being more conservative, and uh, they've been safe ever since. Are there any differences between legitimate rafting companies and the safety of the experience 
in your experience in the United States. If you're concerned about safety, do you need to worry about which company you go with, or are the legitimate companies uniformly safe? I would say uh, with the legitimate companies, you're pretty much getting what you've paid for. You're getting uh, an excellent core of guides with a lot of experience and maturity and skills, and uh, they're watching out for you, and they're really good at what they do. And uh, with the dories, for example, we have another layer on top of everything because we don't have a rubber raft that bounces off things. You know, we, we're watching out for these beautiful, graceful wooden boats, and uh, we don't want to get, as Martin Litton used to say, a hole big enough to throw a cat through. <laughs> so you, your trips are with wooden boats, not inflatables then? Right. Uh, the dories okay. are these incredibly graceful boats, and uh, they're wooden hmm. Uh, with usually fiberglass coverings, but uh, when you hit a rock uh, or you're in the wrong place, you, you can crack a hole in it, and then right. it takes a couple of hours, plus the ego is rather bruised. So, you know, not to say that that's any more important than a person's life, but uh, <laughs> we're often, <laughs> you river know, we're very conservative. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Hefe Aronson about the, the challenges and the delights and the rewards of being a, a river raft guide on the great rivers of the United States. No, you mentioned a handful of rivers, four rivers. Uh, you've got the Tuolumne, mm-hmm. which is the adrenaline rush. The other three were all mm-hmm. of a similar challenge. Middle Fork of the Salmon River in Idaho, the Rogue River in Oregon, and the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. Colorado mm-hmm. River must be the epic experience. Uh, but how would you describe the Rogue and compare it with the Middle Fork of the Salmon for people who might be choosing between the two? The minimum age is uh, only seven years old on the Rogue, whereas it's 12 years in the Grand Canyon. So that allows more family trips. You can bring your kids, and you can often take an inflatable kayak or a paddle raft. Uh, There's all kinds of options. And the rapids are not quite as big or as consequential. So, you know, you have time to relax. And uh, there's a trail along the whole length of the river, and it's rather close. The the Rogue River you're talking about there? Uh, Yes, sir, in the Rogue River in Oregon. It's, It's basically a really good place to bring a family to kind of start out if you're not really sure. Like if you don't know what what's class four, what's class five, if you're in that group, then you probably want to start out on a on a river like the Rogue and kind of see how it just beautiful it is and how easy it is to just get along and and make it happen. I sure am disappointed when I'm on a river and there's a long stretch of no white water. People want white water, but they do need breaks Mm -hmm. in between if they're a family. Yeah, and there are no stretches like that on the Middle Fork, as hopefully you recall in the, on the Salmon River. Uh, it basically is moving all the time. That allows them to use those old-timey sweep boats with oars in right. front and back, those weird contraptions where they can't actually row against a wind. But they don't need to because the water's always moving. And on the Middle Fork, uh, I mean, the fishing is incredible. Of course, they have this incredible wildlife. I mean, they're in the largest contiguous wilderness in the lower 48, the Frank Church Wilderness Area, and you've got bears and bald eagles and elk and deer and sheep, you name it. That's really the classic wilderness trip uh, is the Middle Fork of the Salmon. And it's not so overly challenging that you couldn't take your family down. Uh, The minimum age there is nine years, for example. Who sets these minimum ages? Well, each company will have something different, but we really concentrate on the safety and we try to keep a, a gauge on when we think a child has their own personal safety in mind and they're not going to go do something that uh, that risks their life. Of but course. is this age set by companies or some sort of a, a, a state? Yes, or each, each company will oh, set their own Oh, each company has their own. Age. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you said mm-hmm. uh, these are great rivers, but your passion, your favorite is the Grand Canyon. What is it about the rafting the Grand Canyon that makes it just like the ultimate rafting experience? Oh, boy. Finding an oasis in, in the middle of the desert surrounded by thousands of foot cliffs that are just burning red with a sky of deep indigo. And and there you are, jumping into a pool with maidenhair ferns or seeing a waterfall that pours over a thousand foot cliff from a deep, dark notch. Experiencing the desert and the heat and being able to pour water over your head and, and be comfortable and feel like you're in the middle of one of the wonders of the world. The Colorado River, the mighty Colorado, it's storied in legend. It's, there's so much to it. It's just grabbed my heart from the moment I saw it. Wow. If anybody has anything even remotely resembling a bucket list, I would think uh, the Colorado River should be on it. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, I hope I, hope I get a chance to share it with them. <laughs> Do you encounter people who are struggling with you know, their own terminal illnesses or whatever that take a river raft as sort of a great way to go out? 
Well, um, on one of our jumping mouse trips, uh, what we called the disabled trips that we pioneered in the early 90s, we had uh, several people who were going through chemotherapy, and I could relate to that because I had cancer myself and as a young man. And we had one woman who was doing chemo, and uh, she had um, not too long to live, and this was on her bucket list. We didn't used to call it that, but that's what it was. And we reached this incredibly beautiful remote beach backed up by a cliff, and you could hear the river's sound in the background just whooshing and roaring and and I heard these quiet murmurs of people talking in little groups and her helper came up to us uh, the boatmen were sitting on the on the boat in the evening sort of taking a break and uh, he told us that she had uh, asked permission of the group to die right there on the beach because she knew she was going to and she was so happy she just wanted to do it right there Wow. Well, I'll tell you, we, uh, we were up till wee hours of the morning discussing that one. I bet. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, a friend of mine wrote a song about it uh, called uh, Bright Angel, and uh, it, it really, it's what I want to have read in my, at my funeral, that's for sure. This woman ended her life in the most beautiful experience she could probably imagine, and the river's also about life itself, isn't it? Oh, well, I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, that's what she was feeling, as the river is about life. It's just, it's one of those vacations. I mean, I don't even think of it as a vacation. I think of it as a life experience. And, you know, it's one of those things where you, you're not looking at something or you're touching something as much as you're feeling your heartbeat. Uh, we had this guy in his 80s on um, on a trip up in the Tachinchini last year, and uh, he kept, he'd, he'd just scream, Oh! And you'd kind of turn around thinking, oh, my God, he's having a heart attack. And he'd have this great broad smile on his face. And he'd go, oh, look at that. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I just, I, I've, I've never been anywhere like this. And then, you know, okay, Jim, thanks very much. But don't scream, you know. And then the next five minutes later, you'd go, oh. And you'd go, Jim, you okay? Oh, look at that. Oh, my God. Heffy <laughs> <laughs> Aronson, you make me want to go to some river and, and go, oh. Whoa, that's incredible. <laughs> Happy river rafting. My pleasure, Rick. It was, it was great to be here with you. This immense river waters one of the fairest portions of the globe. Nor do I believe that there is in the universe a similar extent of country. As we passed on, it seemed as if those scenes of visionary enchantment would never have an end. Meriwether Lewis. Taking the classic grand tour from the comfort of home with librarian Nancy Pearl. Up next, plus a guide to tapas in Spain. It's Travel with Rick Steves. To avoid finding yourself lost, frustrated, and hungry in Spain and wondering why none of the restaurants are open at 7 o'clock, you'll want to stay with us. 
Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, a pair of guides from Madrid help us figure out how to enjoy unforgettable Spanish specialties in local tapas bars and how they operate so, as an outsider, you won't be intimidated and you won't go hungry. But first, literary maven Nancy Pearl joins us for a grand tour, one that requires no passport, just maybe a library card. Nancy admits she hasn't seen much of the world in person, yet she knows a lot about places she's never been. That's because she's seen them in her imagination, with the help of some great authors. Nancy's a type of guidebook author herself, and the latest title in her Booklust series is her custom guide to great literature with a travel theme. It's called Booklust to Go. Nancy, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on the show. Nancy, when you're thinking about traveling, you know, I've spent most of my experience traveling in Europe, and I'm so enamored with the grand tour, the 19th century, when aristocrats would, uh, part of their, you know, coming of age would be to do the big tour around Europe. What's a book that helps us connect with those romantic age travelers? Well, you know, a really interesting one, and it's said a little bit later than that, is actually Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of renewed interest in Mark Twain these days because the first volume of his autobiography just recently came out. And I think The Innocence Abroad, as funny as it is, and as long ago as it was written, really still has so much relevance. And, you know, he's got a wit, but he's also a keen observer of, of cultural foibles and little insights. Oh, yes. Much satire in that book. Um, you know, a lot of snark. <laughs> who, who else comes to mind like that? Because I'm always wishing I was a keen observer. Some people I read on and go, that's one keen observer. Um, there's one book that I really liked a lot by a contemporary journalist named Geert Mock, who's a Dutch journalist, and his book is called In Europe, Travels Through the 20th Century. Now, that's a really thick book, and you're going to look at it and say, that's a doorstopper. <laughs> it's going to be just too boring for me. But I think that what he does in this book is talk about the present in terms of what made it what it is today, and it's so readable. What brought us to where we what are. What brought us to where well, now we that's, are. Well, that's an example of how travel reading can be recreation as well as important to education. Absolutely. And, in fact, the books that I like best of this kind, of this ilk, are books that I'm reading and just loving. And then I think, wow, I learned so much about Pakistan in that book, yeah. even though it was a thriller and totally fiction. One of my themes when I'm teaching is to understand the sites. If you go to a, a medieval castle and you don't know what feudalism is, you're not going to get it. Yes. And and it's a real challenge to humanize the Middle Ages. What's a good book that takes us back to the Middle Ages? Well, a, a couple of them. One is, of course, Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, which oh, I yeah. think is one of the best mysteries ever written and one of the best guides to medieval Europe. Another one, there's a wonderful series uh, by Ellis Peters uh, featuring a medieval monk named Brother Cadfail. Uh, you can watch the series on television as well as read the books. But there's, I think, more than a dozen, more than two and, dozen and books. what's that series called? Um, it's the Brother Cadfail Mysteries. Brings you back to the Middle Ages. Yes, because mm. he is a medieval monk. Mm. Um, I love that, the power of the monks in the Middle Ages. You just can yes. hardly imagine. Oh, and that's and, what was so entrancing about the name of the rose. Yes. You know? oh, oh, yeah. And and, the, and he's the author is so brilliant. You know, the church controlled all the knowledge yes, back then. Right. And it, they were lording it away up in the attic. Yes. And then if you got up there, it was like, you're trespassing. Yes. What is the, um, there was always a, a locker in the libraries for the uh, prohibited books. Mm-hmm. Libri prohibiti or something right. like that yes. in Latin. Yes. And those are the books that mortals cannot read. Right. All right. right. Yes. And then there's a new book called A Traveler's Guide to the Middle Ages by John Mortimer, which I think is another one of those big books you know, it's going to take some dedication, but it's not in any sense an overly scholarly book. It's a right. it's a book that you can really enjoy reading. And you'll, if you do get a chance to go to Europe, let's just say you want to actually travel. Yes. It'll pay off many, many times because every time you go to anything medieval, you'll understand the context. Absolutely. There's, of course, this popular genre of Under the Tuscan Sun, yes. a year in Provence and right. so on. You know, one of the things that I've always wanted to do, that I've always done in my career as a librarian and a book commentator is that I've always tried to um, talk about books that people are not familiar with, to go beyond the obvious. Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't want to necessarily include Peter Mayle or Francis Mays just because everybody already knew them. But there are versions of those oh, books that are unknown. Oh, but there's hundreds of yeah. And I've and, stumbled on yes. some very nice ones. Oh, yes. There's a section that I put in here called 
so I slash we bought a house in. (laughs) And one of my favorite books is by Tahir Shah called The Caliph's House, and it describes what happens when he brought his family to Morocco to a house that had once been owned by a caliph that was now in disrepair that he decided to buy. And almost any book that Tahir Shah writes, I will read without question because he's such an entertaining writer. What is his name again? Tahir Shah, S-H-A-H. Everybody has certain things that just capture their imagination. And for me, it's either adventure stories like Shackleton or it's raft stories, Adrift by Stephen Collins, and Climbing a Mountain, of course, like John Krakauer. Yeah, those. Well, this was so interesting because one of the uh, sections that I have in here is about women rowing the Atlantic. And one of the best books that I included among a whole list of very good books is a book called A Pearl in the Ocean by a woman named Tori Murden. And so somebody emailed me and said they had gotten a copy of the book. And the subject line of the email was book lust to row. And she said that after reading this book, All that she wanted to do was row across the Atlantic. She had started taking rowing lessons. When she told her mother that she was going to do this, that this was her goal, her mother said, would you please wait 17 years until you're 60 and I'm dead? (laughs) You know, Nancy Pearl, you could be an accessory to some major problems for some young (laughs) idealistic kids rowing across the Atlantic after reading a recommended book. Right. And it's certainly nothing that I would ever (laughs) undertake. But it's fun to read about. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're armchair traveling with Nancy Pearl, and she's well-known for her Booklust series, recommending great books, and uh, her latest book, Booklust to Go, good books for people who like to travel. One place you can travel with a book that you can't travel with a passport is to imaginary places. <laughs> yeah, isn't it weird for me to include this? But I love books that are set in a recognizable place that is not quite recognizable, where the author has taken a real place but then made a kind of 25-degree zig into fantasy. And I had to include the books in this section are books that I, I had to include. I Most of them have come out, but not all came out since the first two books were published. And so I just, I had to include them. And one of the best is, of course, Michael Chabon's The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is set in Sitka, Alaska, as though Sitka, Alaska were the place where uh, was the Jewish state rather than Israel. He created a Jewish state in the (laughs) Arctic almost. Yes, (laughs) yes. And so there's one of those that's absolutely wonderful. What's another fantasy place? Oh, and anything by Guy Gabriel Kay. Um, Guy Gabriel Kay, Medieval Spain, his book, The Lions of Al-Rasan. You're going to find it in the science fiction and fantasy section of bookstores and libraries. But it is really a history of the Reconquista. And the three main characters represent the three different groups who were so involved at that time, the Jews, the Arabs, and the Christians. And the the work that these authors all did in researching is so lightly worn in those books. It's one of those times when you just... You just learn so much. Even though it's not real, it is so real. You get caught up in this fantasy world. Yes. And it's just like, am I there? Right. Pinch me. What what existence am I in? And that's the best kind of book. Um, I would love to travel to India, but I want to go to India in, say, 1935. (laughs) Okay, I'm talking with Nancy Pearl. She wants to go to India in 1935. (laughs) And uh, there's a quote in your book. It says, adventure is just a book away. I'm going to challenge you here uh, because you are the rock star of American librarians, and I'm going to say a word, and then you're going to just kind of whatever uh, comes to mind as far as where you'd find that in a, in a travel book. Okay, exhilaration. Now, can I take that as nervous exhilaration? You can take it any way you want. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a really good book called Tea Time with the Terrorists, A Motorcycle Journey into the Heart of Sri Lanka's Civil War. Ooh. Now, if that's not going to give you, like... That's going to get you pumping. Heart palpitations, yeah. I don't know what is. A, okay. a great book. And you're in Sri Lanka, which, again, is not going to be a likely destination no, for and the gonna, ordinary traveler. No, you're going to gain an understanding of the Tamils and the a- Sinhalese exactly, going at Exactly, exactly. Fear. Fear. Um, Almost any book I read about travel makes me scared because I just couldn't do what they do. Um, John Krakauer's, of course, John Krakauer's Into Thin Air. Very nice. Um, Yeah, unbelievable. You can't put that book down, and it is just um, riveting. Ah, all right. Romance. 
oh, you know, all of these writers have, most of these writers have fallen in love with their with their subjects. And so um, Mary Kingsley's Travels in West Africa. Now, there is a Victorian woman traveler who defied most of the regulations and rules that women had to follow at that time, fell in love with West Africa. Gertrude Bell, another late Victorian traveler, she was the woman who actually drew the boundaries of present-day Iraq. And there's a wonderful biography of her by Georgina Howell. Do you find that writers need to share their romances and they work them into their fictions in a way that is almost clunky and forced? Yes. Um, if, if somebody is writing about Morocco, I want to know about Morocco. You I don't, don't really wanna, care about their, I don't care their, about their, their girlfriend <laughs> you know, that they used to have. What book gives you empathy? In a funny way, Rick, I think all of the books that I read for Book Lust to Go gave me empathy, either for the writer or for the place. Um, Botswana, you know, Alexander McCall Smith's Precious Ramatsui books. If um, Alexander McCall Smith had not written those books, if there weren't an Alexander McCall Smith, then Botswana, the Botswana Travel Bureau or mm-hmm. whatever, would have had to invent him. To me, travel gives you empathy. And for you, a good travel book gives you empathy. Yes. It's just fundamental. Yes, yes. Funny. What book do you find funny in travel? Oh, there's a section in Book Lust to Go called It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. And there's a book called Undress Me in the Temple of Heaven about the first trip that these young college graduates from Brown University took and all the mishaps that befell them. And it's written by Susan Jane Gilman. And that made me, parts of that made me wince, parts of that made me laugh. Everybody loves to eat when they're traveling, even if they're just armchair traveling. What book took you to a beautiful meal? Wow, you know, you know what did was, of course, Julia Child's mm. memoir. Oh, yeah. Written with her great nephew. Nice. And that history, that made me think, well, maybe I should give up reading and start cooking start instead. Start eating. Maybe <laughs> you probably gained weight reading right. that book. And finally, what travel book inspired you? I think it's those books about those very brave women Victorian women travelers like Isabella Bird and Gertrude Bell and Mary Kingsley, those women who did things that nobody had done before them, no woman had done before them. And, you know, they, they're just carrying the flag of the British Empire and kind of showing people what the Brits could do at a time when when the sun never set on the British Empire. And when they probably really believed God blessed them to, yes. to rule the world. Yes, absolutely. It took you into that mindset, yes. into that age, and to that place. Totally. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been armchair traveling with Nancy Pearl. Her new book is Book Less to Go. I'm always so proud of how many stamps I have in my passport, and I'll tell you, I need a few more stamps in my uh, the books that I've read list, and uh, you've been quite an inspiration to me. Let's just close it up by letting you think of a book you've read lately that takes you to a particular place particularly vividly. What was that? Um, John Burdett's Bangkok Tattoo and Bangkok 8 are two thrillers set in, of course, Bangkok. They're very violent. They're very graphic. And you have to have a certain tolerance for both of those things. But wow, you know Bangkok. Nancy Pearl, book less to go. Can I wish you happy travels? Yes, please. Happy travels. Thank you. You bet. There's more book lust to go at Nancy's website, nancypearl.com. And you can listen to more from Nancy and from all of our guests in the radio archives at ricksteves.com. Willie Weir sees the world from the seat of a bicycle. And sometimes he's got room in his rucksack for a little pleasure reading when traveling far from home. He's here to tell us about the time he found himself at a loss for words. Bikes and books are a fabulous combo. They both allow one to explore, to wander, to visit exotic places, and to discover new worlds and passions. I do my share of reading at home, but it's mostly newspaper and magazine articles. Books just read better when you're on a journey. Your body is tired from a day of pedaling and your mind is free from the workaday stress. Give me a tent a headlamp, and a good book, and I am one happy camper. The journey also brings its own perspective to the pages you're soaking up. I read Peter Jenkins' A Walk Across America while I was cycling across America. I read Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie while pedaling around India, experiencing the same heat and smelling the same exotic fragrances he described. 
In New Zealand, I was reading the classic Mutiny on the Bounty. There was a mention of Fletcher Christian gazing up at the Magellanic Clouds, a couple of galaxies one can see with a naked eye in the southern hemisphere. I turned off my headlamp, and there they were, two fuzzy splotches in the night sky. It gave me literary shivers. The problem with books, from a cyclist's perspective, is their weight. Unless you are out of your mind or have quads of steel, you don't throw into your panniers the dozen books you've been dying to read. I know there are people out there who hear this and will ask, why don't you get a laptop and load it with e-books? I'll admit that I'm a bit of a Luddite. Even when I finally break down and join the laptop-packing adventurers, I'll still want to hold and caress a book with pages. It just feels good. Before I left on an extended pedal around Central America, I went shopping for a good book. After two hours of wandering in a used bookstore, I emerged with an old, tattered paperback copy of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. It was one of those books I'd always meant to read but had never gotten around to. There was one problem. At 1,100 pages, the book just wouldn't fit into my front handlebar bag, which was already stuffed with a camera and extra lenses. After much debate and a little bit of soul-searching, I decided to put my Swiss Army knife to use and slice the book into 100-page sections. This allowed me to soak up 100 pages at a time and then rid myself of the material burden. And the more I read, the lighter my load. Why hadn't I thought about this years ago? The book began slowly, as do many of my bicycle journeys. By the time I'd pedaled through Belize, I'd only managed to get to page 242. But somewhere in Guatemala, the novel sucked me in and I flew through the next 500 pages, tossing each section as I went. Pages 301 to 399 were used to begin a campfire at 8,000 feet. As I crossed from El Salvador into Nicaragua, I had only two more sections of the book. I threw them both into the handlebar bag. I couldn't wait to get to the end. I went through a set of batteries in my flashlight that night, polishing off pages 900 to 999. The next morning, I passed the section I'd read into a burning pile of rubbish on the side of the road. My mind wasn't on the scenery or the people around me. It was wrapped up in this novel. It was time to release myself from this work of fiction and get back to the reality of my bicycle journey. After about 20 miles of pedaling, I bought a quart of milk, a bag of cookies, and I found the shade of a palm tree. I got comfortable, using my sleeping bag as a pillow, and began to read. But something was wrong. Oh, terribly wrong. The first paragraph was all too familiar. I gazed at the upper right-hand corner and saw the page number. It was 900. I had thrown out the wrong section of the book. Atlas may have shrugged, but on the edge of a dirt road in Nicaragua, Willie screamed. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro... Willie Weir joins us from time to time with dispatches from his travels. You'll find lots of them in his latest book, Travels with Willie. His website is willieweir.com. How not to go hungry in Spain when your American stomach says it's dinner time, but the local restaurants aren't due to open for hours. A guide to the tapas bars of Spain is up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Anytime you travel, eating is a big part of the fun. And I think in Spain it's a bigger part of the fun than in most countries because of one beautiful concept, tapas. We're going to talk today about tapas, and I'm joined by two tapa fans who live in Spain, Federico Garcia Barroso, a madrilino, a man who's lived all his life in Madrid and takes Americans around Spain filling them up on tapas. And Amanda Budinger is from the United States, and she's lived in Madrid for 13 years now as a tour guide, and will give that uh, insight into enjoying tapas as well. Amanda and Federico, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Federico, tapas are unique to Spain. I really think so. Explain exactly what a tapa is from a Spaniard's point of view. A tapa is much more than food. It's just a way of socializing with, with, with others. And it's a very, very old tradition in Spain from centuries ago, you know. The word tapa means actually a cover, a kind of a cover thing that they used to put in some of those glasses and some of those 
uh, dishes, you know, a long time ago, you know, just to keep uh, food warm and to uh, avoid some flies, you know, flying around. So, so you get a glass of wine, they would put a little coaster on top of it. Exactly. And they would weight the coaster down, mm-hmm. not with a rock, but mm-hmm. with a nice morsel of something tasty. Exactly. And that would keep the flies out. Yeah, but also, <laughs> it's also important to say that it's coming from a very old tradition in the 16th century, if I'm not wrong. That is a moment in which uh, most of the taverns in Spain, they were just selling wine and wine and oh, no okay. water, just wine. And obviously those places need to offer some food, you know, because people could get drunk easily, you know, and the idea was okay, to eat something. Okay, so moderate the drinking with a little food. Mm. Now, Amanda, you've lived for more than a decade in Madrid. Tell me about bar hopping. Well, from a, a tapas point of view. From a tapas point of view. A lot of times what you'll do is you'll go out with a group of friends, you'll put in a, a kitty, you'll go from bar to bar, and everyone will pay for a round, and then you, you eat and stand. A lot of Spaniards like to stand while you're eating and drinking, and so it's a real, you go in and out, and you have to decide where you want to go, and, so it's not and a check tur- out places with you know, as going, you walk by. That mobile s- feast is not a touristy thing. No, 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 no. And you, you actually establish a kitty first. They all kick in 20 euros or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And, and when it runs out, you ask for more. <laughs> <laughs> I think geographically, the, the bars are set up so you can oh, yes. have a nice walk yes, through yes. the town. And you kind of check them out. So, oh, that one. You never go into a bar that's empty. You'll go, you say, oh, this is empty for a reason. Mm-hmm. Because as Federico <laughs> says, part of the whole concept is not just calories, but uh, socializing. Exactly. Conviviality. Exactly. Is there a word for a tapa crawl, a pub crawl with tapas? Tapear. Tapear. Tapeando. Federico, take me on a fantasy tapear. Give me four stops. Put it together in the most (laughs) utopian way. What would you eat in each of those stops? Don't even. I don't care about the places. Fantasy world. I'm worried about what is going to go into my mouth. All right. Spanish omelet. Spanish omelet. Spanish omelet. Of course. Absolutely. That is uh, easy, uh, cheap, and good, and it's available everywhere. Describe a Spanish omelet. Spanish omelet is. Well, baked potatoes with uh, scrambled eggs uh, and some pieces of onion sometimes, and, and it's slightly, slightly fried on a pound. Now, you call that a tortilla española. Tortilla española, exactly, which is completely different to those tortillas that we know in Latin America. Amanda, that must be interesting for you when you have American friends going to Spain and they say, I want a tortilla. Oh, yes, yes. When it's on the menu, <laughs> you say, oh, look, a tortilla. A tortilla. And then, oh, I, wait, this isn't corn. It's <laughs> <laughs> and I like that for breakfast. I don't know if that's normal, yeah, but I, I really, I go out to a bar and I have a, a coffee con leche and some fresh squeezed orange juice, mm-hmm. and a tortilla espanol. Mm-hmm. Amanda, what would the second stop, what would you eat on the pub crawl? We always we always like to have cheeses, different types of cheeses, a manchego cheese or goat cheeses. Um, a lot of times they'll combine them with pieces of bread or little extra garnishings if it's a goat cheese or a softer cheese. Spanish cheeses? Yeah. What's yeah. your favorite uh, Spanish cheese? The manchego. Manchego, manchego cheese. Yeah. It yeah. really is yeah. good. That's the harder cheese. The harder mm-hmm. cheese. Right. What do you drink with that? Wine. Always drink red wine. Red wine. That's my my thing. A lot of people go out for beer, but I like having my glass of red wine. All right. Federico, Mm. the third stop on our pub crawl. Mm, Pimientos de padrón. Ah, that's my favorite. Those are the ones that I like. Those tiny peppers, you know, that we say in the Spanish language, there's a proverb about that that says, pimientos de padrón. Some of them are spicy and some of them are not. And that is true. That's a little rhyme in Spanish. Exactly. Los pimientos de padrón. Unos pican y otros no. (laughs) <laughs> and if you've had pimientos de padrón, you know, they glisten. They, they glisten in a way that just says, eat me, you know? I oh, mean, yeah, they so come yeah. out of that little hot hole in the, mm. in the kitchen, and it comes right to you, and there's something about the salt and the, and the oil and the freshness <laughs> and the ambiance and the Russian roulette from a taste point of view. <laughs> Why is that, Amanda? Because as you're eating them, some of them are sweet. They're small green peppers, so some of them are a little sweet green pepper taste, and then every now and then you mm. get the really, really spicy chili-type pepper. It's specialty of a particular region, isn't it? It's from Galicia. Yeah. From Galicia, exactly, from Galicia, next to St. James of Compostela, Santiago de Compostela. Most of those pilgrims, when they end that way, that holy way, they all want to eat those uh, small peppers in Santiago. Oh, so that's Pagan. what keeps the pilgrims going for <laughs> I think so. 30 I really days think so. <laughs> of trekking through the hot and dusty plains, <laughs> that reward of a plate of pimiento de pedron. Mm-hmm. All right. That's the specialty of Galicia in the northwest of Spain. I found all over Spain that there's a sort of a regional pride, and this bar is known for Basque, and this bar is Catalonian, and this bar would be Navarra or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, Federico. In Spain, of course, there is a national pride 
it's all about politics. Uh, and from a long time ago, this is coming actually from the 19th century. You know, this is not a new story. And there are some moments in our history in which those those nationalistic uh, movements are more obvious. I would say that, that we still see that in Catalonia, in the Basque region, also in northern Spain, and it's likely in other places. Galicia is not really, a, it would be the third the third example, but not so deep as, as the ones of Catalonia and, and the Basque region. Is, is there a little bit of empathy and solidarity for the underdogs struggling against Madrid rule, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think of Catalonians and Basque people and Celtic people in Galicia, mm-hmm. do they just feel better going to a Basque bar because the Basques are chafing at, at the yolk? No, of... because the Basques are really good cooks. Oh, that's that's why. Why. <laughs> okay. Because Basque country is, that's like, most reason. famous for its... Uh, yes. Yeah, yes, absolutely. The, the tapas in the culinary. Many times I've gone to a bar in Barcelona, and I just think, this is great. I feel like I'm eating local, and then I realize I'm eating Basque. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It becomes something really, really popular all over Spain all the Basque uh, restaurants and, and taverns. Hmm. Now, when you're in Madrid, you can travel through the entire country of Spain just by knowing what bars to go to. Yeah. You know, it, it seems to be a little bit weird, but it's absolutely true to say that Madrid has the second biggest seaport in the world after Tokyo. I mean, we have such a variety of fish and seafood, fresh fish and seafood in Madrid City. The second biggest seafood market after Tokyo. Which is unbelievable. I still don't Madrid. know how it comes. But that, that's how many people in Madrid? Imagine we are nearly, nearly four million. Four million people just slamming down all those beautiful tapas, <laughs> and a lot of them are seafood, <laughs> because Spanish people love to be out and social, and it goes hand in hand with enjoying mm-hmm. a good drink and some good food. What time, Amanda? Tell us about the the time that you would find tapas, as opposed to the times that you would eat in a restaurant. In the evenings, uh, tapas you can find a little bit earlier than a, a restaurant might open around eight thirty or nine o'clock. But a tapas place, you could maybe find one at 7 o'clock in the evening, and it might be a little bit less crowded. And, of course, this is a huge pitfall for American tourists. If you go to a restaurant and try to eat at 7 or 8, you're going to be eating with the staff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they'll yeah. serve you at all. It's just a bad scene, and it's a drag. It's empty. Mm-hmm. But you can enjoy the, the vibrancy in a bar eating tapas. Is tapas for you, Federico, uh, warming up to a meal, or is it the meal itself? It finally becomes a meal itself, you know. I will say to all Americans that when they come to Spain and they want to eat, they should learn three words. <laughs> the first one, aperitivo. The second one, tapa. And the third one, ración. I mm-hmm. will say those three are actually enough. Aperitivo is absolutely free, appetizer. It's free. Go to any place, order a good glass of wine, and of course you are just waiting for that free appetizer. And that would be... A little uh, uh, open-faced sandwich? A, or a little bit, just any kind of food in a small portion. Okay. And that is free. In a good bar? In a good bar. A even. touristy bar would might not do that so well, much. Well, actually, let me tell you that there are some places that are not touristy and they don't give you aperitivo, so you should come back to that place. No, Boycott so. those places. So right. traditionally, a good bar will give you a free little, a little bite with your drink. Okay, the second word, tapa. Tapa. Tapa is actually the same food, you know, in a bigger portion, and then you have to pay something for that. And then this ración, this is an important concept. Ración would be the next one. It's a bigger portion. A bigger portion. Most of the bars and taverns, they offer you tapas or raciones. Tapa would be actually a portion for one person, and a ración would be something bigger for two or even three people. Now, a frustration for me, Amanda, in a lot of bars is they're less inclined to offer tapas, and they want you to buy, spend more money and get bigger portions and you can, half rations yes, and exactly, full rations. Exactly. You can mm-hmm. get a media ration. Media so you ration. Can get a half ration and which is going to cost double what a tapa would cost and be twice as much food. But, but twice like as that. much food, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. But that's a good option if you're with uh, several people, like say four mm-hmm. people, and you don't want to just get two different right. raciones. You can get four media raciones and have a variety. That there. makes sense. Yeah. Amanda, how do you choose a good bar just visually when you're wandering on? What do you look for? I look for people, mm-hmm. I look for the wines, and I also, what you can do is you can say, okay, are they going to give us an aperitivo here? And you look around at the other people and say, ooh, everyone with the drink has a small little something. Maybe I'm going to go in that place. That's nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Federico, that's what we used that's to a do. very good tip. Absolutely. And what else do you look for, Federico, to understand the character of a bar? Mm, well, just to, to see, of course, that the, the atmosphere is it's quite good and to find local people, that means something. If you find local people yes. inside, local that people. means... Yes. If you find a lot of garbage on the floor... Well, hmm, then I try to go to another place, you know. I've, I've noticed that in a lot of bars, they just throw everything on the floor. Yeah, which is a really bad habit that it's we all have. We have to be critical about that, and, and that is something that I don't like, but it's unfortunately quite common in many places. So that, but Especially what, in the South, I think. In is the that South, right? Yeah, that's true. The napkins on the ground. Yeah, it's just like there's no garbage cans. It's just tossed on the floor. Mm. And if the TV's on, 
<laughs> I kind of like that when the TV's on because yeah. it's it's gathering, you know, the bullfight aficionados or whatever. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there's some cheesy game show on or some some <laughs> some bullfighting or, or so on. Or soccer games. Yes. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're enjoying tapas in Spain, sightseeing for our taste buds, and we're joined by Federico Barroso and Amanda Budinger, two friends of mine who live and guide in Madrid. And I've spent a lot of time in the bars drinking beautiful little glasses of wine and uh, enjoying the incredible variety of tapas. Jessica in Chicago emails us, and she writes, We love tapas and eat them all the time in Chicago, so we couldn't wait to try them in Spain. The first trip was a bust. We were intimidated and didn't enjoy it. But the second trip, we did much better because we researched and we pretended we were just locals. It was a, it was a much different experience. That's an interesting report from Jessica in Chicago, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I can relate to it. A lot of times I'm intimidated. It can be intimidating. There's a general system, but a lot of different bars have different systems. Do you go to the bar? Do you order? Do you wait for them to come to you? Do you pay before? Do you pay after? And a lot of times it changes. That's so. true. And if you just sit place. there politely in the corner, oh, no. you'll, 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 never you'll die of hunger. <laughs> <laughs> Even politely at the bar. I have a lot of tour members who are standing politely at the bar waiting for someone to come over and ask them, what would you like to drink? <laughs> you have to go to the bar and say, hey, hey, hey I want a drink. You gotta, and as a tourist, you need to muscle in yes. there. I think this is yes, a very important yes. thing. I'm going to just talk about a few concepts here so people like Jessica can have a little more confidence in the bars. Federico, barra, terraza, mesa. Mm-hmm. Barra. People stand right there, just drink and eat something quick. At the uh, bar. At the bar, exactly. Mesa, a, a good seat, you know, to enjoy your meal and to take your time. And sometimes, not necessarily, but sometimes prices are slightly more expensive just because you have a table and chairs, you know, and then you have a better place. And terraza, terraza is actually a little bit more expensive because that is the coolest place, you know, an outdoor place where you can have your food and your drinks and enjoy the weather, you know, that's the way it is. So a lot of times on the menu, you'll see three price categories. Mm-hmm. You can see your tortilla espanol, mm-hmm. and it might be one euro mm-hmm. at the bar, mm-hmm. one fifty at the mesa, and mm-hmm. two at the terraza. Maybe in that way, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not that price, but... Sometimes, sometimes, though, you might see a price on the menu, and you think, oh, great, one fifty or one euro, and then you get to the outdoor mm-hmm. cafe, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're charging you one fifty or two mm-hmm. euros, or even much more, and you yeah. think... Oh, why did you charge me this? Oh, no, that's right. the outdoor right. cafe or price. Maybe, Amanda, you just see, well, 10% more expensive yeah. in the terrace. In the terrace. Yeah. But that's in the ah, small, well, that's small nice. print that's, on the bottom yeah, of Yeah, but if you're in the, the Plaza Mayor in, in some famous touristy town, you'll probably pay a little bit more yeah. to yeah. sit out. Yeah, exactly. I just love to get a mix. Like, Amanda, you were talking about cheese, and of mm-hmm. course you can get a mix of, of different meats and so on. Federico, surdito is an important word. Is that workable for a tourist to ask for a mix a surtido. Oh, surtido. Oh, yes. Surtido, surtido is actually an, an, assortment, an assortment. An assortment of a variety of different things. In those cases, surtido is actually the best choice. It's mm-hmm. just a big, big dish with several slices of bread with some food on the top. And then you taste a little bit of fish, meat, vegetables, you know. Surtido is one of the best choices. Amanda, bandaria, what does that mean? It's a little toothpick with an assortment of olives and onions and vinegar and different vinegar-type things. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Federico Barroso and Amanda Budinger. We're talking about tapas in Spain. As you're out and about, you have to be sort of on your toes. I've found that paella is expensive in a restaurant, Mm -hmm. but if they're serving Mm -hmm. it up in the bar and they bring out a plate of tapas As a tapa of paella tapa, it's a nice little taste. That's a a very nice choice. That's my favorite way to get paella is when it comes out spontaneous. And there's sort of a buzz. The whole bar goes, ah, paella. For me, I'll take one. (laughs) Pulpo. Pulpo a la gallega. Pulpo is delicious. It's octopus. And they, they cut it in little discs, in their little circles. So pupo and then they put, uh, gallega style, like from Galicia. Paprika on top yeah. with oil and salt, yeah. Mm-hmm. Federico, do you get better quality when you pay more for your ham? Of course, <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. Iberian ham, pata negra, hmm? black hoof, we could mm-hmm. say in English. That is with all my respect to Italian prosciutto, you know, Spanish ham is absolutely the best. I will agree with you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an Italophile, and I'll agree with you there. And a lot of people say life's mm-hmm. too short to drink lousy wine. <laughs> I would say life's too short not to eat expensive jamón. Yeah, exactly. You've got to try that. Amanda, patatas bravas. Patatas bravas, uh, fried potato cubes with a nice spicy sauce on the top. A lot of people are very passionate about that. It's sort of your standard 
like French fries. It's interesting because not much Spanish food is spicy. And no. a lot of people come over thinking it's very mm-hmm. spicy or hot or that it'll have more spice in it, but it, it's not as spicy as you might think. But the patatas bravas is But the nice patatas way. bravas yeah. are. As a tourist who doesn't speak Spanish, I'm frustrated by the wine situation, and sometimes I feel like they're just tossing me some table wine. How do you get a good glass of wine? They, they usually offer you two types of wine, a Rioja and a Ribeira. Uh, the Ribera is generally a little bit stronger tasting, a little Ribera. bit more Ribera. Yeah, a ah, little bit so more there's a Rioja and there's Ribera. Yeah, yeah. And then and if, if you, you want a quality, what If you is? want a quality wine, you have to ask them if they have a wine list. And Federico, what's your tip for getting a good wine? Well, a Rioja actually is one of my favorite Rioja. wines. Yeah, I like the Rioja. And then <laughs> like what are the words like Crianza and Reserva? What do those things mean? It's all about the, the time, the time that the wine needs to be in those wooden mm, mm-hmm. barrels. Barrels, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, a crianza, it, it has to be there for more than two years and a reserva for more than four years, so if I'm not wrong. You're talking $1 or $2 for your glass of wine. You, exactly. might, as, you might as well mm-hmm. go top end in mm-hmm. a bar, right? And then ask for a reserva. Exactly. And if you're drinking, but you're not drinking alcohol, what's the key word? You can get a mosto, which is a grape juice. You mm-hmm. can get Coke or Sprite or... And a non-alcoholic beer? Non-alcoholic beer is sin alcohol. Sin so if you say without, mm-hmm. that means a non-alcoholic beer. Exactly. Amanda, if you have a guest who's a little bit wide-eyed and never been to Spain and you want to get him out of their comfort zone, what tapa would you... Uh... Try the fried pig's ears. Oreja. Oreja. Oreja and, which and means and ear. What does it taste yeah. like? It's crunchy and crispy and... Uh, I like yeah. to say it's the cartilage. People yes. like it? Um, some people, they like it, but not enough to have a full ration okay, so, of it. Okay, so share your half ration yes, of yes, pig's ears. Yes, definitely. What's the word again for pig's ears? Oreja. Oreja. And Federico, you've had a long evening of fun with your friends and drinking and eating and tapas from all over Spain, and you want to go someplace special for dessert, what would you do? Chocolate. <laughs> Hot chocolate. Hot chocolate with churros, fritters. That's what I like. Fritters. Yes. Churros. And to dip those churros into the chocolate, thick Spanish chocolate, you know. And so these are like, like cigar-shaped mm-hmm. donuts, kind of, very greasy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and the chocolate is like pudding almost, isn't it? It's, it's so thick that it looks to be a kind of pudding. We all usually order a glass of water, you know, but that's Spanish chocolate. Mm-hmm. Now, for a lot of people, that's their standard uh, diner kind of breakfast in Spain. But also, if you're out late and mm-hmm. you're out dancing or something and you're mm-hmm. on the streets at 2 o'clock, yeah, there are some places, there is a very popular place in my city where people just go there to have chocolate at 2, 4, or 6 a.m. You know, I think I've gained weight just talking in this last 20 minutes. Thank you both for joining us, and I'll uh, see you in Madrid, and we'll go, uh, what is the word for a tapa crawl again? Tapa? Tapear. Tapear. Okay. Gracias. Muchas gracias. Thank gracias. you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at Capital Public Radio in Sacramento and to Aaron Harding for help with today's show. We also get technical help from Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Rick provides guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular sites, and you can download them to your smartphone or portable player. You'll find a link to Rick Steves' Audio Europe on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Chocolate. (laughs) Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Spain, Portugal, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books for Iberia and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.